Well, friends, welcome to the program. This is Dr. Jack, and this is the place where we explore the field of psychology through lectures, as you can see in my early episodes, and by getting to know diverse professionals and students in the field of psychology. I know there are a ton of podcasts out there, so I'm very happy and humbled that you've decided to stay and visit. For today's episode, I have a chance to speak with Caroline Lay, who is a associate marriage and family therapist, and we'll talk a little bit about that during the conversation about what that means. And she's in the Los Angeles area. She specializes in working with young adults and professionals who are struggling with burnout. She works with career counseling, relationship issues, immigrant issues, women's issues, childhood trauma, and anxiety. She's specifically also passionate about working with the Asian American population and destigmatizing mental health and changing the face of mental health uh, overall. So her current passion project is to expand their brand, uh, Powerhouse Therapy, and utilizing social media, becoming more active in the mental health community. And she hopes to continue the spread of awareness about mental health and destigmatizing, easy for you to say, mental health within the AAPI population. And I have to tell you, this is a very interesting conversation just because of the stage of her career development. I've spoken to those who are established professionals in academia or in private practice in psychology, and I've also spoken to undergrad as well as PhD students. And for her, she is actually in that stage where she's finished her master's degree and getting into a master's not major, not being a psych major, which is kind of interesting. I thought it was Interesting to see how she is in the phase of accumulating training hours. So she has her master's degree, but you can't work independently until you earn your license. So we talked a lot of detail about how to earn your license in the state of California. We kind of dig into also the telehealth issue um, because her graduate school years and training was pretty much all online, which I thought was very interesting. So we dive deep into that particular experience and what it's like to be a, a young female Asian American person in the field of therapy. Is a draw or is that a hindrance when working with her clients? So I think you'll learn a bit about that. I think we talk a lot about the, the you know, our own thoughts about the future of the field of mental health and therapy. Um, I think you'll find that what was also kind of fun is that Caroline asked me a lot of questions. So if you hear me talk and ramble a lot, there's an excuse for that because she's actually asking me questions, right? So I kind of like that because it was actually a back and forth conversation rather than the usual just question, answer, question, answer kind of guest interview. So before we get started, just a gentle reminder that if you feel like you get some benefit or enjoyment from my podcasts and you want my podcast to get even better, then the best way to do that is to support me. You can subscribe, follow, share the podcast in your social media platforms. You can rate and review it if your podcast app allows that. I only have a few ratings in the Apple podcast app, so if you're using that to listen to podcasts, I'd appreciate if you would uh, add a rating and a review. You can also support me by buying me a coffee. Right, The method is in the show notes in the description, as well as other methods of supporting me. You can support me monthly through the link in the description as well. Okay, I hope you enjoy this particular conversation with Caroline Lee. 
Okay, I have Caroline here from um, the LA area, who's a uh, private practitioner, right? A therapist. So how are you doing, Caroline? I'm good. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited. I put out the invitation to the Asian American Psych Association, right? And uh, I was just so surprised that so many people said, yeah, I want to chat. And uh, so you're uh, probably my third guest, I think, from that invitation. So I'm, I'm really grateful to have you on. So what I like to do with my guests, and it doesn't even matter what their profession is within the field of psychology, is to tell a little bit about your origin story, right? Going back as far as you'd like to at whatever age you were, stage of your education, and then suddenly a light bulb appears and, oh, I want to pursue psychology, right? And uh, so how would you describe your origin story and how you got started in the field? Yeah, I actually made like a career switch into psychology. Um, I wasn't like super far into my career or anything, yeah. but I initially like went to college um, and got a degree in business and marketing. Hmm. Um, and I was like in marketing for fashion companies. And it, it didn't take me a long time to realize, like, I didn't think that was like the career for me. Um, I just started to feel unfulfilled and there was like mm. something missing. Yeah. Um, and it took me a really long time to put that connection together, which I didn't really make on my own either. I was always like talking about mental health because it was something that I saw a lot in my family growing up. And I didn't even have the words to uh, describe what mental health was until I was in college. I didn't know what that meant. Yeah. Um, it was really different in coming from like a immigrant family. Um, it was just never talked about. It was always like swept under the rug and I was still a kid. So I just had no idea what was going on. Um, and then one day my friend was like, Oh, you should be a therapist. And I was like, wait, what? <laughs> and that's kind of when things really clicked for me. And I made, um, kind of an impulse decision actually to start, um, getting my master's degree in marriage and family therapy. Yeah. Oh, wait, hold on a second. So your friend said, suggested that you should be a therapist just out mm -hmm. of the blue. Uh, what, what made your friend say that? Do you remember? Yeah, I think I was telling him to go to therapy. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so that was really funny and it, yeah. it never connected to me that like I could be that person. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And then just, just like that, you just decided, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to check it out. And you did a little research or whatever and made that switch. Yeah. Like looking back now, it mm -hmm. was so impulsive. I should have mm. definitely <laughs> like done more research and think about it a little bit better. But I think the biggest motivator behind that was me just being really unhappy at my current job. Um, and also like the pressure, I guess, to be, to start my career and, and doing a career change. I'm already like a couple steps behind and I still feel really lucky and blessed to be, uh, finally starting my career still at a young age, um, I think, but I still definitely felt that pressure because I just graduated college. Everyone was starting their career. Yeah. Everyone seemed like they knew what they were doing, you know? Um, and I was making a big change. Yeah. There's a lot of peer pressure, I guess, right? Whichever group or cohort you're in that everybody's sort of like, oh, they graduated, they're moving on to this step that, and there's always this judgment about whether we're ahead or behind. Right. And as a parent, we're constantly battling that is my child ahead or behind. And then we sort of had to let that go. 
right? Everyone advances at their own pace and learns at their own pace. And did you feel like at some point you had, you sort of got comfortable with that and stopped competing or is that still sort of a struggle? Like, you know, I got to be at a certain place or, you know, be established by a certain age, that kind of thing. Yeah, absolutely. I definitely feel it's like still a struggle. Um, it comes and goes. There are a lot of days where I feel like I'm doing great. I'm like on top of it. I feel really happy. Yeah. And then literally the next day I'll be like, oh my God, like if I started earlier, I could have been licensed by now. I could be making more money. Right. Um, there's just so many thoughts that pop up. Yeah. I totally went that went through that too. I was all but dissertation for uh, embarrassing to say about eight years, I think. I completed my coursework and all I had left was the paper and just let it drag on, right? And that's a, such a self-esteem killer right there, right? When, when you feel like you haven't finished something. Um, so what was it like when you started? I mean, you said it was an impulsive decision, right? So you were working, you already had your bachelor's degree, right? In, in marketing, and then it was unfulfilled. And you went into, so what, what were those, wait, so let's talk about the application process. So how did you go from having the bachelor's degree and some work experience and then deciding to, you know, fill out these applications for the master's program in, in counseling, right? Was it clinical or counseling? I guess counseling, right? Um, it, it was marriage and family. Mar therapy. Okay. So specifically yeah. it was marriage and family counseling. Mm -hmm. Okay. So how did that process go in terms of uh, putting out those applications and putting it together? Yeah, it was really stressful. Um, they just don't really teach you much about mm -hmm. like master's programs in general, I feel like in the education system. That's some research you kind of have to do on your own. There, there's so many different types of programs. They all cost so different, yeah. um, so many different formats. And um, honestly, I based my decision a lot on it being affordable for me and also being able to still work because it was just not financially feasible for me to um, be a full-time student without working. Yeah. So you were able to attend a master's program part-time, I guess, right? So taking maybe half the level of coursework, that kind of thing, and still work outside of school. Yeah. 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 So was it a, was it a, a barrier not being a psych major? Because I'm sure there's a lot of people out there within my, I guess, dozens or hundreds of listeners who may be interested in a psych career, maybe they think, well, I'm an engineer now, or I'm doing this now, but I really am interested in psychology. You know, I don't have a bachelor's degree in psychology. Who am I to apply for a master's program? So describe that process. Was it hard or, or not that hard to get into the master's? Obviously you got in here, you, you got through it, but um, w were there a lot of questions raised about that? Yeah, you know, surprisingly not. There was not a lot of like barriers to entry. Um, the application process was fairly um, simple. And and that was interesting to me too. Uh, I think just because th uh, there's not a lot of therapists out there. So there yeah. can't be so many barriers to entry. And on top of that, I don't know how much it feels valued in society still. Yeah, yeah. But because of the pandemic, I think the awareness is right increased and the need is there. I know teaching at a community college, one of the most popular majors is nursing. They've always mm -hmm. said forever that there's always a demand for nurses. Da, da, da. Now I wonder if we're shifting that to therapists as well, hopefully. 
Yeah, hopefully. I'm interested also to uh, learn kind of how your application process and what it was like for you. Yeah, yeah. Well, for me, uh, well, I finished my bachelor's in psych, okay? And actually, for me, I wasn't as clear in my vision what I wanted to do. Even though I finished my bachelor's degree, I didn't know what field I, you know, I didn't, it wasn't clear that I wanted to be a clinician or a researcher or an academic. In fact, I think I was too young and immature at that mm -hmm. time to really make that decision. But like you, feeling that sort of like, whether it's family pressure or societal pressure, I just felt like, well, I didn't know of anything called a gap year or, you know, these concepts weren't in my head at that time. And so I just went straight to applying for graduate schools. And I just thought, well, what kind of things am I interested in? Well, I kind of like health psychology, which is sort of under the umbrella or related to social psych. So I started applying to social psych programs without thinking far enough ahead as to think about, well, what do social, social psychologists do? Where do they tend to work, right? Because once I got started, I realized that, oh, these are going to be career academics who are going to do a lot of research for that. And I really don't enjoy research. <laughs> I don't enjoy writing research papers, the whole process. And that's why I struggled with my dissertation was just sort of like, just couldn't get motivated to just, you know, do a lit review and methodology and statistics. And so through my volunteer work in, around the Houston area, I got involved with some community uh, activists and, and mental health workers and professors who wanted to start up a, an Asian American counseling center, right? And suddenly I realized that, oh, there's a real need for therapists out there. So I decided to apply for, after being in a doctoral program in social psych for a few years, I switched majors, which I mean, means I had to apply like everybody else. It wasn't just a simple hop over to the next building kind of thing. So they're in different departments. So I applied for counseling psych PhD program. And luckily, uh, even though I didn't complete my master's in this counseling psych program required a master's, I was able to get in. And that's sort of, yeah. And then after I finished my counseling psych degree, I figured, you know, I, I really enjoyed my internship and all that, but I started teaching at a community college just as my job, right? And as so, but then I was ABD for so long while I was a full-time faculty teaching at a community college. I enjoyed that so much that even when I finished my dissertation, I felt like, well, uh, how am I, going to go back into clinical life, you know, get my hours and get licensed. Mm -hmm. It seemed like that boat had passed, right? And so I just kept going on this community college teaching route, which I enjoyed. So, so that even though I got my counseling degree, and this is sort of, I, I tell people, this is sort of the worst way to go about pursuing <laughs> a career because I went the tourist route, right? Over these mm -hmm. hills and mountains. And I ended up doing what I'm doing now where I, I, I could have just taken this more direct route over there, a direct flight and save years and years and money and a lot of money. Um, but I am where I am now and that that's how it is. And, um, so yeah, that's kind of, <laughs> you asked the question. So that was, a, yeah, that's pretty much yeah. what happened to me. Yeah. So similarly, you, um, there were not too many barriers of entry for you. No, no, not really. I think, um, even though I was one of the very few people in my graduate programs being of Asian American background, um, I did feel a little bit of that responsibility, right? That oh, mm -hmm. I really can't fail here. It would make my people <laughs> look bad, right? Um, mm -hmm. It's like, oh, okay, if I mess up, they're gonna not really recruit Asian American people into the, the program in the future. So I felt a little bit of that kind of pressure, but no, getting in is actually was okay. I didn't really face a lot of discrimination or, or negative attitudes about that at all. 
Yeah. And you did that in Texas or California? Um, oh, um, that was all, all my graduate school is in Texas. Okay. Yeah, yeah. But by then I realized that, you know, I've had enough of Texas. So when the internship came around, the clinical internship for the doctoral program, I applied everywhere in the West Coast, all California, and also Hawaii. <laughs> so I just want to get as far west as possible. I want to meet Asian people, you know, that kind of thing. And, uh, and I got a lot of interviews that end up in LA, actually, you know, there's a VA outpatient clinic in downtown, mm -hmm. not the big VA, but this, this is a small outpatient clinic. And that's where I was. And it was such a wonderful experience, actually, uh, at that outpatient clinic. So so what? Okay, so what kind of training did you have during your master's program like what kind of yeah. setting was it yeah i um did my hours at a homeless shelter for domestic violence survivors oh wow yeah and i started literally the month the pandemic hit so so that I, oh so that's very very recent okay yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. super recent i was getting ready to like go part-time for my job and then all of a sudden like there were barely any sites that could even continue and like fully trans um, transform into like telehealth. So I was really lucky to get that experience and I loved it. I learned so much and I feel like even though the pandemic obviously was awful, I feel like it did really transform and help mental health like grow rapidly. Yeah. And make it accessible for people, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Which okay. I don't know would have happened without it. Yeah. For a while. And maybe the timing was good for you in a sense, because let's say if you were, you know, private practice therapist for 30 years and then the pandemic hit, right? Just like in academia for me, right? A lot of people have taught and maybe they're in their early 60s or mid 60s, that kind of age, and they wanted to teach longer, but the pandemic hit and they're so comfortable teaching in the classroom, suddenly they have to think about everything they have to learn to teach online. And that's why there's a slew of retirements across the country, right? And so you, you, you're the one person I've spoken to first that did their clinical training during the pandemic. See, earlier I was speaking to grad students, so just barely, they're barely getting started. Or I've mm. talked to all other clinicians who are already established, right? Who had to adjust to the pandemic. So you started your training <laughs> within the <laughs> pandemic, right? And we're still technically in it, right? So that really hasn't changed that much. So how do you, did you actually have some face-to-face -face counseling as well as, or is it mostly just telehealth during your training? Yeah, no, I did not have one client in person. Wow, um, that's interesting. Yeah, I w it was stressful because I, I don't know, there's like so many different factors and not knowing like how long telehealth would stay. There was so many times where um, like the DBS was gonna expire that waiver and, and having to like switch everything up, but also like the concerns of COVID that were still going on and are still going on, which was huge. So looking back, I feel really lucky that um, it happened actually because it, it came at a really great time. And I think the ability to adapt is something that's really important in all fields. Yeah, yeah. And uh, so what was it like initially, like say with your first client and in that particular population and also doing this online, what was that like early on? Was it pretty scary? 
Oh my gosh, so scary. <laughs> I was just like on Google, like, what do therapists ask on the first <laughs> session? Because <laughs> I had no idea, like all the training I had, all the, um, was just online. My whole yeah. master's program was online and wow. I chose that okay. yeah, specifically so I could go to school and work at the same time. And I was so excited to like finally um, like meet people, um, uh, talk to people like within the field. And then of course, COVID hit. So I never got to do any of that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, it was really, really nerve wracking. And I think it's funny because they always throw in like the students with kind of the more intense cases, right? Hmm. Uh, I worked with so much like BPD, um, which is borderline personality disorder. Um, yeah, a lot of PTSD and like mm -hmm. just ranging like a huge range of ages from like kids at like five years old to one of my clients who was like 80 years old who just retired wow. um yeah it was just like they just kind of throw you in and you yeah. just figure it out <laughs> learn learn thrown into the wolves kind of thing but that sounded mm -hmm. like a great experience because you work with such a wide variety of issues that people and the the wide variety of age groups Right. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And that was like a big uh, concern for me because I am obviously like Asian American. I'm a female mm -hmm. and I look pretty young. Um, so I was really concerned that like nobody would take me seriously. And yeah. that was something I had to like overcome. And, and something that I learned that I really, really um, think about often is how much people have in common in general, um, working with so many different types of people I never thought I could relate to them I never thought that they could see me as somebody who could help them or you know have the same feelings but yeah just having that experience I find myself thinking like we're just all more similar than not yeah yeah so that initial fear of how am I going to connect with this client who's so different from myself mm -hmm. and how are they going to perceive me the way I look or the way they perceive my age and ethnicity Right. So you're saying that through that experience of of having repeated clients, you realize that those um, barriers start to melt away. Does that sound about right? Yeah, absolutely. And just also kind of getting out of my own head. It, it's like not about yeah. me. Right. It's obviously about the client. And I was like so caught up in that. And I think I still am sometimes um, being like a minority in the field. Yeah. Um, you know, these are this is like one of the only careers where it's kind of an advantage to be older and look older oh, um, interesting yeah that's an interesting observation i guess you might be right right people kind of expect you know some old wise person <laughs> on the mountain to give them advice right a lot of people have that perception about therapy so they yeah. come in and they see someone who like could be their child you know <laughs> that perception right if they're 40 they definitely are <laughs> old enough to be your parent they're like well you could be my daughter's age how are you going to help me absolutely a hundred percent and that is something i still kind of struggle with mm -hmm. um but now that the mental health world is like really changing yeah. i feel like it's important an important mission for me to change uh to contribute to change the face of mental health yeah um especially in the media it's when you think about it or i mean i know even when i was growing up it was always like older caucasian male or females and like these sweater vests, you know, <laughs> like glasses, being really wise. And, and yeah. I know that's like not me, obviously. So understanding too that um, people aren't always necessarily look, 
looking for that and and it's really changing and it's changing fast which is really exciting yeah yeah and really the bottom line is how we connect with our clients right mm -hmm. not as not in our, our ability to be empathic and uh and be a good listener and uh, i have the exact same experience as you when i was in the va hospital right and i had such great fears the first time i i it was at the houston va which is one of the biggest in the country and i thought oh, i'm going to be working with possibly vietnam vet veterans right combat veterans mm -hmm. and what are they going to do when they see my face in there you know are they going to flip out and start attacking me because i'm asian and all that and and of course those are just my fears my own perception mm -hmm. and it, it turned out to be not the case at all you know it only happened once and then when that person left group therapy and they cursed at me in my face and everything and called me all sorts of ugly names and left the other veterans in the group said oh he, ignore that guy he just did that as an excuse not to be in therapy right it's not really about you so that made me feel a lot better and and so it's like you said you know it's just, we're, we're just as competent we can connect with people we can help them and i had zero almost zero in common on the surface mm -hmm. with the people i was working with right and like you said you know you work with a homeless population i did too at the va and it, what do I know about being homeless? You know, I have never experienced it. So there's a lot of talk out there. I think a lot of thought about how similar a therapist needs to be with their client, right? I think, especially in the substance abuse kind of area, I think I remember hearing a lot of discussion about that. Is that well, you got to be able to relate to your client, so it's better that you're you're in recovery or have been through it. But for those of us who haven't been through it, and we're working clients who are so different. So what do you think was the key for you to sort of you know, feel confident and, and, you know, I can work with someone regardless of their life experience and they're, they're different from me. Yeah. What I think it comes down to is like emotions, like mm. in therapy, when we talk about emotions, like I felt every, like similarly, every emotion as my client, whether it's like they're happy or they're annoyed because, you know, uh, their partner has done something. I felt that before or if they feel pressure from their parents. Um, and I felt pressure before and, and maybe the circumstances are different, but at the end of the day, pressure is pressure. And we all know how that feels like. And I can really relate to that. And, and I find a lot of comfort knowing that we can be so different, but feel the same emotions. Yeah. Yeah. That's really good. Um, so when did you finish your degree? Because we're talking um, about so recent, so when, when was yeah, it? <laughs> it was last August, last, so oh, 2021. Okay. 2021, and then you got your license, right? And uh, yes, and, no, no, I'm I'm still getting my hours, so I'm still an associate. Oh, okay. Um, yeah. it's so different for each state. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, which is another thing. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. I saw that in your description. You you mentioned associate, so I didn't really understand. So ex explain to me and everyone else what what does it mean to be an associate marriage and family therapist yeah so associate is pretty much after you've graduated with your master's degree and you're still gaining hours california has the most um like rigorous process we have to get 3,000 hours before we can take our license exam um and so you're pretty much an associate and you work under a supervisor the main difference is that you um consult with your supervisor every week with your cases um opposed to when you're licensed and you kind of don't need to. Um, other than that, once you get your 3000 hours, you can go ahead and take the test and then become licensed. Yeah. 
So pretty much at your work now, every client you see, those are accumulating toward those 3,000 hours, right? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So you're under supervision. And how long is that going to take, like in terms of months and, and, and whatnot? What's sort of the average? Is there an average or expected time period? Or is this widely varies depending on the person? Yeah, I think it widely varies, but I'm definitely counting down the days. <laughs> so every hour counts. Do you know um, how many hours you have right now? Do you re remember? Yes, of oh, course you know. I do. <laughs> <laughs> okay. How many hours yeah. do you have? I'm around like 1400. Oh, okay. Um, yeah. So at this rate, I'm getting around like 100 hours a month. Mm -hmm. So hopefully within like a year. Um, and that's another thing I feel like pressured about too. <laughs> I'm just like hurrying up and finishing it, but also knowing like I can't speed up time. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's understandable that you want to speed it up a little bit because you want to become independent, you know, mm -hmm. and, and work on your own. And then also financially, there's an incentive there, right? Uh, presumably when you're on your own, you have more control over how many clients you can get and all that. Okay, so I find this part pretty interesting in terms of where you are now in your professional development, because I've spoken with students who are just starting out. I've spoken to professionals who are already licensed and already have their private practice. And you're sort of in this, right in the midst of, you know, right getting hours, then getting licensed and all that. So what is your understanding of how the licensing part of it works? You know, what do you need to, what do you expect is going to happen? How do you prepare for it? What's the test like that you, that whatever you understand as, as of now? Yeah. So there's uh, actually two tests that you have to take. The first one is the law and ethics exam, um, which I've just taken and oh, okay. thankfully passed. Wow. Okay, great. Congratulations. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. Um, and again, like every state is different. So like, mm -hmm. I know like in, in like Utah, you can, graduate and take the test immediately like and you can be licensed opposed to california where it's definitely a longer process um so after you 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 have to take the law and ethics exam um within like the first two years of graduating and then after you accumulate your hours then you have to submit your hours they have to get approved to the bbs um, which can take a little bit um i know it took me like two months to get my associate number um, just because of like the processing times and everything. Mm -hmm. And then is that, is that like an ID number, like an ID number? Is that what that yeah. is? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Essentially. And what, what does so. the BBS stand for? Um, Board of Behavioral Sciences. Ah, okay. Okay. And that's, mm -hmm. that's for the state of California, right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So like social workers and, and people like uh, psychologists, they all go to the BBS as well. Oh, okay. Interesting. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, once you get your 3000 hours and then you apply to get take the test and your hours get approved, then you take the test. And then if you pass, you yeah. get your license. So your first test that you already passed, was that a just a written uh, standardized kind of test? Was it essay? Was it all multiple choice or? It was all multiple choice. Oh, okay. And then your licensing exam, the next one coming up, that is that also similar to sort of standardized multiple choice questions? Yeah, I believe so. Okay. Okay. Um, what do most people do to prepare for it? Is there a sort of a standard preparation routine or books that people use, that kind of thing, to help prepare for that exam? Yeah, there's definitely um, a lot of online courses, um, different books you can buy, a lot of like practice exams. Um, I haven't dived into it just yet because I feel yeah. like I still have a while. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, 
but when I graduated, they do make you like take a practice exam to kind of like prep you and, and let you know what's coming. So um, yeah, there's like five different sections and they cover different things such as like, um, like case conceptualizing, um, crisis treatment, mm-hmm. like protocol. Okay. So there's are various categories. Okay. That sounds, sounds challenging. Okay. So we're not gonna talk too much about that. That's coming up for you right mm-hmm. now in your current work, uh, or even before you started your training, um, was there a particular, this is talking about your passion project. Was there a particular population of individuals or particular maybe psychiatric conditions that, um, you were most interested and passionate about that you wanted to focus on, or is it pretty much, you just wanted to be uh, a, a really competent generalist that can work with a wide variety, uh, sort of like your training now. So specialization versus a generalist, which, which is sort of your angle. Yeah, I definitely wanted to specialize in Asian Americans. Mm-hmm. I saw that there was like a need for therapists of color and also um, women issues and um, immigrant issues is really important to me, um, which is really funny because I was very stressed out about like finding clients um, mm-hmm. and in that specialization, but I ended up actually attracting um, exactly like Asian Americans just because of my face, essentially. Wow. And yeah. Asian American. Yeah. Yeah. And so that that sounds good. And so in your therapy experience so far, um, what are some of the common issues? I mean, you, you listed a sort of a little laundry list of issues like immigration mm-hmm. and women's issues. So which of those issues that have been the most common that you've seen so far in your training? Yeah, with um, like my private practice experience and yeah. Asian Americans in general um, is just anxiety. The, the mm. pressure to to do, to make something of yourself, to have a career, to get married, uh, the pressure to take care of parents, pressure to take care of siblings, um, and just being so hard on ourselves essentially is like huge. And I see that in almost all my clients. Yeah, yeah. And what is it that we can... Well, we're not in the business of advice giving directly, as we know, but uh, what, kind, what kind of things can we talk about in general? Just sort of the to help with that mindset of, let's say, the the younger generation who are going through this struggles, especially during the pandemic, which is like putting the fire under everything, right? Making everything worse a little bit. So, you know, what's like a what's like a, a common approach you might use to talk to young people about anxiety? Yeah, absolutely. It's just slowing down a lot mm-hmm. of it and like finding happiness in small things um, in the everyday. I think it can be really overwhelming to think of the big picture, but taking things slowly and also prioritizing yourself and, and self-care. Um, and also knowing, I think the biggest thing is like, you can do both. You can take care of yourself and you can also um, you know, do well in school and you can take care of yourself and take care of your family. You can take care of yourself and, um, still do other things. It doesn't have to be so extreme. And I feel like the media especially makes things feel like everything's extreme. Like you either have to do all of it or you can't do any of it. But I think the biggest thing is just learning balance and knowing that you can do both. Yeah. Yeah. I think slowing down really is a key and also balancing, the diet of social media diet, right? It, like a li- little bit is okay. And, 
And there's a guy who's a tech um, person on, on YouTube and podcasting, and, and he put out a tweet saying that, how is the internet similar to uh, Pepperidge Farm cookies? <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> yeah, just a random question, right? Mm -hmm. And the way I thought of it was, well, the internet is sort of like the cookies because it's very attractive on the outside. And then it actually, once you, once you have a little bit, it's like really sweet, it's really nice. But then if you overdose on it, right, it's really bad for you. So I feel like that's how. Yeah, cookie. yeah. You know, the internet's Absolutely. like that, right? Yeah. Yeah. And I feel the same way about almost everything. Like if you do too much of everything, it's never good. Yeah. Um, and just being like more intentional with social media use. I think it's so common for us to just like grab our phone, be on, you know, Instagram, TikTok, whatever. Um, but and also like learning so much from my clients, like everyone's for you page is so different because they're targeting us based on what we want. So if we're intentional with our social media use, um, then we're going to get what we want essentially, because, you know, as a therapist, I use social media yeah. strictly to like decompress. So you'll see my page and it's puppies, babies, like really <laughs> <laughs> simple <laughs> stuff to help me like de-stress opposed to, um, people who are not as intentional and they'll find things that are relatable to them and they don't even realize like what's happening essentially. Right. Or just using it the past time or doom scrolling mm -hmm. and all that kind of stuff. Right. Uh, now that I'm old enough to know what doom scrolling actually means now, my daughter has to teach me all these terms. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. I'm really interested to hear, um, I guess what you think of how mental health has changed so much and like so rapidly in the few years. Um, and how technology has played a part in that. Yeah, that's a great question. And thanks for uh, turning the table and interviewing me for a change. That's <laughs> nice. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, I think definitely, you know, we're learning so much about social media and how it affects our mental health and how the algorithms be used to change our attitudes or put us in a bubble, mm -hmm. you know, and, and I think really, it's just like any kind of technology. It's not all evil. It's not all good. And, you know, you can customize, for example, on Twitter, your Twitter feed, right, by following certain people. And so mm -hmm. my Twitter feed's full of, you know, academics, psychologists, grad students, that kind of thing. And it's kind of a happy place. I mean, sometimes they have horror stories, of course, but, you know, but it's mostly, you know, no politics, right? Mm -hmm. I mean... I was very political for a while and, and then all of a sudden my political, my, my Twitter feed's all political and then all I have to do is follow one Twitter thread and then suddenly I have a headache and I feel sick mm -hmm. and, <laughs> and I feel like, yeah, the world's going to come to an end. I probably feel like a lot of those teenagers you've been talking to, right? Um, and so, yeah, and as an educator, it's such a great opportunity now because, you know, hashtag mental health, whatever, it's like out there, right? everybody's talking about mental health. I would look through and search through podcasts just to see, be curious. And over the past couple of years, you know, at the beginning, there were not that many psychology podcasts, right? Mm -hmm. Especially that are current. There might be a lot, but when you click on it, they're like, oh, the last post or last uh, episode was 2019. The last episode was 2017. It's like somebody started something, but that, you know, just didn't go, right. go with it. So the only ones that are sort of good and then they keep going, there's really not that many, right? Um, but now there are so many, and also Asian American podcasts, there are a ton now. I don't remember them being that many at, at first when I searched. Now there's a ton. Now there's a lot of lay people, non-mental health professionals talking about mental health, right? 
And there's a slippery slope there, right? Because it's okay and kind of good to sort of talk about one's own experience, but then you get a lot of these TikTokers or whatever actually giving advice, right? And they're not mm -hmm. credentialed. Or, and, and I remember there's a therapist, or I think she's also a professor. You may have seen her. She, she, I forgot her name, but she would actually do these TikToks to debunk and put out real information. And she's actually really good with TikTok, surprisingly. <laughs> and, and just, you know, puts out these very engaging things like, you no know, anxiety, you know, treatment anxiety is not this. It's not what this guy talks about or not this, you know. And so, yeah, it's, it's a minefield out there. And uh, so I think the more of us who are either clinicians or educators, also of Asian American background, the more we can put ourselves out there. And I, I know a lot of people are just fearful of social media or want to keep their privacy and all that, but I think it's helpful to counteract all that misinformation out there as well. Yeah, yeah. yeah definitely. And that's huge. I, I see a lot of clients that come in who are self-diagnosing because of TikTok and and that can be a slippery slope for sure. Yeah, self-diagnosing or self-treatment. And, mm -hmm. you know, uh, when I, you know, in my introductions, oftentimes, especially if I'm talking to a clinician, I remind listeners that, you know, hey, listening to this episode is not a substitute for therapy. You know, you have to go to your own mental health practitioner and doctor to talk about medications and treatment, that kind of thing, right? Don't just rely on someone's testimony um to do something for yourself and that's everywhere right whether it's taking mm -hmm. care of your skin taking you know losing weight there's so much you you know stuff out there on youtube and elsewhere that people feel like oh i can just do it. why do i need to see a doctor it's all out there right and um but i think the ones that we know you can trust are the ones who don't have all the answers right and don't give direct advice like like me as an educator in and it used to be you know in the therapy world I'm very, very careful with my language, right? Not to overgeneralize. Like it's always this, always that. It has to be this, you know? The, the, the reason that a lot of psychology research always has the word, I just said always, has words like maybe, should, might, right? And the layperson might think that this research is not worth anything. They don't know anything because it's always like so vague, but it's vague because of a reason, right? Nothing's absolute. And it's all about mm -hmm. trends and probabilities. And that's why scientists use that kind of language, but, uh, but that has to be communicated. Right. Yeah, um, absolutely. Yeah, I think that's yeah. like apparent too. And like in the studies and stuff, um, I know we talk a lot about like how all the theories in psychology were created by like older white males, um, in Caucasian sample studies, um, sample populations and stuff. And also questioning that, which I think is really important too right now, especially with like utilizing like the DSM. Um, and it still feels very extreme to me to, you know, have to have all these symptoms to be diagnosed. Um, whereas you might be feeling some, and it could be more of like a mild case. Yeah. I've talked to a few clinicians and those with a lot of experience and, and uh, one in particular was a private practitioner from Georgia and they don't really rely on the DSM that much, mm -hmm. you know, Everyone, I mean, it's useless, I think, as a reference tool, but very, uh, it's very unlikely you'll get a textbook case, right? So, oh, you perfectly reflect what's on page 355. You're like a textbook, you have all the symptoms on this checklist, right? I know it's kind of a necessary evil, right? Because we're mm -hmm. following the medical model. We need to have codes for insurance purposes, right? Um, does your clinic that you're working with use the DSM for that reason? 
if you guys take insurance, I thought you guys did, right? I looked on your website. And, and so are those codes being used for reporting to insurance companies? Yeah, pretty much. Um, I, I was taught also in school that like the DSM is like, it is cut and dry in that way. And so that was something I learned a little bit later, like practicing and understanding that sometimes um, it's not cut and dry. I, I mean, most of the time it's not cut and dry. Yeah, yeah. And sometimes people may present symptoms of this, but maybe they don't have exactly that, like mm -hmm. bipolar disorder or, you know, full-blown depression. They may have symptoms of it, right? Or signs of it or hints of it. And uh, there's, so, there's so much gray area and overlap too of different, right? Yeah, Some of them may have bits and pieces of different disorders, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, that's a challenge. That's a challenge for us. So how do you use, I, I think in uh, your notes that you sent to me that you're trying to use social media, right? And be more active in mental health community. So how do you envision that or, how, or what are you doing now? Like um, with social media, I mean, do you use it as a tool to sort of as a marketing tool as well? Since you have a marketing background, you have to go out there and put your face out there and people will find you. So does it have that yeah. purpose as well? Yeah, um, definitely. I think it mostly is just to like spread awareness and education about mental health. Mm -hmm. um, going back to kind of what you said, there are a lot of like unqualified people doing the same thing. <laughs> so just trying to be yeah. one of the hopefully qualified yeah. people doing that. Um, and yeah, for me, a big part of it is just like spreading awareness and education because that's something I really didn't have um, growing up and even finding the right words for it was so difficult for me. Um, thankfully, like that's changed a lot, but I, I think it can still be prevalent in immigrant families where um, it's not talked about at home. Yeah, and this is why representation is so important, right? And your direct reflection of that, right? If, we were, if it weren't for you and being uh, public, you know, and people finding you or, or at least seeing your face along the website of clinicians, right? Like who, who are these practicing? And then you see, it's like when we find doctors, right? We look on the website mm -hmm. and, oh, that doctor looks friendly or whatever, you know? And, and then they see your face, oh, maybe she would relate to what I'm going through or she can relate better with what I'm going through because of, uh, you know, your gender or your identity, that kind of thing. So I think that's why representation is really important. Yeah, absolutely. And I feel like it's a really exciting time to be Asian American, especially in the mental health field um, and in the media, too. I think we're gaining a lot of spotlight, hopefully, really quickly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And really what we need is just a wide variety of representation, like in popular media, right? Mm -hmm. Not to be typecast and, and then, you know, it reinforces stereotypes and that kind of thing. Um, yeah, I'm actually interested also. Um, so you started off and mm -hmm. so you got a bachelor's in psychology yeah what was um what was your knowledge of like mental health and psychology growing up yeah it was just sort of like actually i did have a little bit of exposure because i think uh one of my siblings you know really had issues with my parents you know and i was the middle child so i got shielded from everything mm -hmm. you know i just sort of like stayed quiet and nothing happened but my my older sister really had a lot of uh, run-ins with my parents being the first one, you know, my parents were immigrants as well from Taiwan. So, you know, whatever transition and, and ethnic identity conflicts and all that, you know, the, the oldest child gets the brunt of all those things, right? Cause they're going mm -hmm. through it for the first time. 
And I remember there was a Taiwanese American uh, therapist who was actually very well known in sort of North and in the Houston and Texas area. So she was Taiwanese. So within the Taiwanese community, you know, everyone knows about her. So I remember her being at our house, you know, wow. and, uh, and at that time I really wasn't aware. It's like, Oh, it's like auntie. So-and-so is here. Auntie Ruth <laughs> is here to talk to my parents and my sister. You know, that kind of, it's like, like she's a friend of the family mm -hmm. kind of thing. But I think she was there also to do a little bit of family counseling. Right. Uh, in hindsight, I kind of, oh, okay, that all made sense now. And I remember, and I actually worked with her to create, help create that Asian American counseling center in Houston. You know, she was one of the leading forces of that. Um, but yeah, but, uh, you know, for me going into psychology was sort of like an accident. I was an engineering major and then, then I wanted to change majors. I just really wasn't happy. And, uh, and I just chose psychology because I thought it was kind of interesting, but not really having a clear roadmap. But even when I was an undergrad, we had a friend of the family who, who had a psychotic breakdown and then they came to me to ask questions, you know, what should we do? And, and, and you know, of course I wasn't licensed. I not even, wasn't even in grad school, wasn't even learning about being, a, you know, cl clinician or, and so what I basically said to them was, you know, you got to take him to a hospital, <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. I mean, this, this is a drastic change in his behavior. And I, and I talked to him and he was totally a shell of himself as a, you know, younger person who was in high school. And I just said, you know, to the dads and, you know, yeah, he's, he's, he's going through something. I don't know exactly what I'm not going to be the one to do any kind of diagnosis. I'm just an undergrad in psych, you know, let's get him some help. And luckily he did. And with some medication and treatment, he he's, he's totally fine now. Mm -hmm. But I think that was one of the triggers that's like, Oh, you know, it's important for me to be in psychology, I think. Wow, that's really cool. Um, so it sounds like it was a part of your childhood, but just like not openly. Yeah, not openly. Um, I know some people probably have very direct experiences of like trauma or loss or grief and that motivated them to get into psychology so they can also help with that population. And I had a fairly sheltered and boring middle class, you know, life growing up. And so that's why it was such startling for me to go to the VA hospital and work with people who have substance abuse and homeless problems, you know, and for me it was such as like a, you know, pristine, clean, never got my hands dirty kind of upbringing, you know, um, it was really a challenge, but I welcomed that challenge, but I was able to still just because of who I am and, and sort of my mindset, I was able to connect with people. And they felt heard and validated and all that kind of stuff. And uh, so, yeah, I, for those out there who want to go into the field of psychology, you don't have to have that direct life experience to help people who have that life experience, I feel. Yeah, it might, it might help. It might help, of course. You know, people can readily, quickly identify, say, oh, you've been through this. Okay. And, uh, but then you still have to be a competent therapist. Mm -hmm. Right. You can't just have that to rely on on your resume. It's like, oh, I, I experienced substance abuse. I'm in recovery. So that automatically makes me a better therapist. It, it may not. Right. Yeah, I definitely agree. Yeah. Yeah. So anything else you're curious about? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I actually had a lot of questions. You have I a lot of questions. Okay, cool. Keep asking. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm interested to hear, I guess, like, because you've been in the field for so long, mm -hmm. um, where do you see like mental health going? There's like so many, yeah. I feel like opportunities right now. And even coming out of grad school for me, I 
didn't know, like, there's so many jobs, like you could work for the county, you know, you could work private practice, you could work at uh, rehab treatments, there's just so many. Um, and there's like, now like better help, things mm-hmm. where you can literally text a therapist, like, where do you see mental health going? Yeah, and I, I think those online for formats, um, they really need to work on also their patient privacy type things and the technology aspect of it. Um, I, I just saw a report that a lot of these, uh, whether they're health health apps, prayer apps, you know, these relaxation apps, right? These are all health related mm-hmm. and mental health related that they really need to work on their uh, shoring up their data, you know, in terms of how to how they handle the data. But I do think that that's a great opportunity for therapists like yourself. But I think you may have some insight on this because you've done telehealth is that my understanding is that because our licenses are state bound, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then suddenly, let's say you do your private practice and you're doing telehealth. How would you work with someone from you're in California? How you, would you work with someone who lives in Oregon? Right. You know, how, how would you work with someone who lives in D.C.? Right. And I think hopefully there's going to be this trend. I know that some states have a consortium, like some sort of reciprocity because of geographically they're close together. Yeah. But it's not a 48 state thing. It's not a 50 state thing. Right. So I wonder if maybe just trying to be a little bit psychic here, I wonder if at some point because of the need and because, you know, obviously there's not one mental health professional for every individual or every family and, and some places in rural areas probably don't have access at all. Right. I remember seeing a report recently that there are so many different counties and I forgot the number, but you know, that don't have one that does, that doesn't even have one mental health professional in their vicinity. Right. So I think we're going to have to rely on telehealth and there's got to be more data about its effectiveness. There is some preliminary data. I think they're showing pretty good signs of it, but like someone like yourself, you get your license. Wouldn't it be great if you can just put yourself out there and anyone in any state can connect with you, right? Isn't that the purpose of the internet is just to be able to (laughs) break down these boundaries. And then we have these archaic rules about, oh, if I just drive 200 miles in the next state, suddenly I'm not qualified to practice in that state. Right. And that's what we have now. That's the system we have now. So I'll be curious. And I'm not, you know, that's why I kind of joined professional organizations like American Psych Association and the Asian American Psych Association. So I want to learn from these associations at that level, you know, what's going to happen in the future. Right. Um, I want to know about it because I want to teach about it and talk about it. Obviously, I'm not a licensed clinician, but I think this is where uh, it can, the next logical next step should be. Yeah, absolutely. I really hope so. Um, I I don't understand the state boundaries at all. Um, I feel like if it were me, I would prefer to see clients that are further from me. Um, A big fear is just like obviously running into your client when you're out and about (laughs) and stuff. Yeah. yeah. Well, has that ever happened? Has it? Did you ever? Because you know the Asian American community can be tight knit, right? You go to the same places. Did you ever run into someone like at a boba shop or anything? No, I haven't, but it's always like in the back of my mind. Yeah, I'm always like, yeah. oh, like what if my client is here? And um, obviously like respecting HIPAA and everything. Yeah. Um, but it's still, it's still, uh, it's still a possibility, even though like LA is really big, California is really big. Um, yeah, it can happen. And that stresses me out a lot. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So 
when you finish your license, what is what is your goal? Are, are you want to do private practice and own your own practice? Do you want to work with a larger hospital? What, what's your goal as of now when you get to that stage? Yeah, I hope to open my own private practice. I am like going back and forth because also, again, like there's so many companies just opening up. Um, they're making mental health like more accessible. There's a lot of jobs that could be a good fit for me. Um, so I'm really trying to keep the options open and see what's out there when the time comes. But I think ideally I would love to have um, my own private practice. Yeah, yeah. So I hope that whoever's listening can spread the word that if you represent a particular community, minority community, underrepresented community, that you could be a very valuable force if you're a mental health professional, right? Or counselor or therapist, um, like yeah. yourself. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. And also just like um, bringing that up, like I guess when career choices are, um, decisions are being made, like being a therapist was never an option to me. It, it didn't come up for me, like, didn't really talk about it in school so that was just not something I ever thought about yeah do you remember other having other Asian American classmates who were either an undergrad well not undergrad for your was different but for your in your grad school that were also of Asian American background getting their master's degree in in uh, marriage and family counseling or were you one of the few yeah I was definitely one of the few mm. um I think there was one other guy and we didn't really get to connect because physically we were far away. Yeah. But that was something I noticed too, because um, I think marriage and family therapist is also kind of like a second career. Well, there's a lot of people who had a life before it and had a career before it. So um, a lot of my peers in school were, again, like those older, like Caucasian yeah. um, people who were deciding to embark on a new journey and go back to school. Um, so it was really difficult for me to see myself as a therapist. And because it was like online, there are people like coming from, you know, all parts of the U.S. Yeah, yeah. And I, I really think that anyone of any background really is totally welcome to and needed to be in mental health and therapy and be a specialist or a generalist and all that. So um, I'm glad that you're in this field and I, I wish you the best of luck going forward and your licensing exam. Um, even though you're not a grad student, so you're in this really interesting segment that I haven't talked to anyone before. They're either, you know, established or they're in school and they have a long way ahead. But I want to follow up with you at some point to see how you're doing after you get your license and all that. Okay. Is this, yeah. it's, it's what I told the grad students that I've spoken to is like, <laughs> yeah, I want to see where you are four or five years from now. So where do you see yourself? This is the prototypical question. Where do you see yourself maybe five-ish years down the line oh, in your mind right now? Yeah, hopefully, no, definitely licensed <laughs> and hopefully like um, starting to really build my own practice. I definitely want to also be like a supervisor in the future. So taking on, um, you know, trainees of my own um, and yeah, continuing to just spread awareness, become definitely more involved in the community and yeah, connecting more with like Asian American clinicians and people in the field as well. And um, yeah. Yeah, that's fantastic. You know, all that's very important work. Okay, so let's finish up with just sort of these uh, lighter questions. And I haven't had a chance to ask that. I just thought about this morning before we talked. Um, what's your favorite food? And if you like boba, what's your favorite boba drink? 
Yeah, I <laughs> love Asian food. I it's so hard for me to choose a favorite because I love all of it. Um, oh, what is your ethnicity? I never asked you. Yeah, I'm Chinese Indonesian. Um, mm -hmm. So my parents both immigrated from Indonesia. Oh wow! Okay, mm -hmm. that's one place we haven't been to yet. We spent a lot of time in Southeast Asia, but we had never yeah, been to Indonesia. Yeah, I saw that yeah. Thailand, yeah. right? Yeah, we spent a lot of time in Thailand and Myanmar and Philippines and Malaysia in particular. But okay, okay, back to your food. So, <laughs> so what are your what are some of your favorite? Whether I don't want to use the labels ethnic food because you know I have my own pet peeve about that that label. You know, like hot mm -hmm. dogs are ethnic too. Every so, what what are your favorite foods in general? And uh, I just want to know. <laughs> yeah, in general, I will always like crave like hot pot or like anything with soup like noodle soup is my favorite <laughs> interesting interesting yeah yeah that's yeah. definitely like a comfort my, food for me yeah one of my uncles has a beef noodle soup shop and taiwan's known for you know, mian, beef noodle soup right and uh and he retired and, and closed and and my wife and daughter is so upset because my dad and I went back last, right? And that's after that trip, he retired. And, and my daughter and my wife were expecting to go back and enjoy the beef noodles. It's a one-man shop, one of those little stalls, right? Mm. And he's like really famous with his recipe and everything. And they're so upset. They're like, oh, lost chance. I can never get that comfort food ever again. <laughs> I know. Taiwan's we always like, um... Yeah, we always compare every beef noodle mm -hmm. soup to that. And, and it never compares. Yeah, yeah that's like um, on my travel list to go to Taiwan and like eat the street food. Yeah. Have you been to Taiwan yet? No, I haven't. Uh, okay. Yeah. Yeah, definitely should, should go there. I, I can give you a, a list of places to go and all that. And it's easy just to, if you spend a couple weeks there, just to explore like all around the Island, you know? Yeah. I would love and, that. And take the high speed train and everything. It's a lot of fun. Um, okay. Well, how about your boba drink? We'll finish with that. Yeah. Oh gosh. I also love boba. <laughs> it's like a weekly Isn't it funny, isn't it funny how, how common everyone knows it now? It wasn't that yeah. long ago where people kind of freaked out over the thick straw and everything and choke, choke, choking on the test. It's like, what is this? But, uh... Yeah, definitely. Uh, um, mine is probably kind of weird. I really like like oolong milk tea with like, I don't like the pearls as mm -hmm. much and there's like a boba shop near here that they put like barley in it yeah so you yeah, like that so, yeah what's the name yeah. of the boba shop it doesn't matter it's, called, just... <laughs> it's called volcano tea on satel oh cool okay volcano yeah tea. and so oolong with milk right mm -hmm. and, and uh and barley but no topia tapioca pearls no no lychee jellies none of that stuff no that sounds like a good drink <laughs> Yeah, we have a really good place here in Northwest Houston called Heavenly. And uh, it's Asian owned, uh, apparently. And they have these tapioca pearls that they infused with uh, maybe sugar, right? Because you know how typically you chew in it and it doesn't have flavor, mm -hmm. right? The, the flavors in the drink. But they have the sweetness in the tapioca and it has a really nice soft texture. And we're like, you know, we go to some of our older favorite places and like, oh, it's not as good. <laughs> so, yeah. And plus they have banh mi Vietnamese sandwiches. So it's like, oh, perfect. We just go there for sandwiches and get, you know, anyway, we can talk food all day. But okay, Caroline, thank you for your time. I think our time thank is up. Thank you so much. Yeah, yeah, it was really nice to connect and it was yeah. really fun. Yeah, it was nice talking to you. Okay. And hopefully I'll, I'll track you down in the near future and see how you're doing. Yeah, absolutely. That sounds great.
Thank you so much. All right. Well, take care. Have a good day. Okay. Okay. Thank you too. Okay. Okay. Bye bye. Bye.